Our code quality tools, linters, test frameworks, and others play an important role in keeping our code error-free and conforming to the rules our teams have chosen. But when these tools become sluggish and slow down development, we often avoid running them or even turn them off. On this episode, we have Charlie Marsh here to introduce Rough, a fast Python linter written in Rust. To give you a sense of what he means by fast, common Python linters can take 30 to 60 seconds to lint the CPython codebase. Rough takes 300 milliseconds. I ran it on the 20,000 lines of Python code for our courses web app at TalkPython Training, and it was instantaneous. With that kind of speed, it's the kind of tool that can change how you work. I hope you're excited to learn about Rough. This is TalkPython to Me, episode 400, recorded January 18th, 2023. Welcome to TalkPython to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Mastodon, where I'm at mkennedy, and follow the podcast using at TalkPython, both on bostodon.org. Be careful with impersonating accounts on other instances. There are many. Keep up with the show and listen to over seven years of past episodes at talkpython.fm. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at talkpython.fm slash YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. This episode is brought to you by Cox Automotive. Join their team and use your technical skills to transform the way the world buys, sells, and owns cars. Find an exciting position that's right for you at talkpython.fm slash cox. And it's also brought to you by user interviews. Earn extra income for sharing your software development opinion at user interviews. Head over to talkpython.fm slash user interviews to participate today. Before we get to the conversation for this episode, I have a very brief sponsored message from the PyCharm team. As you know, I'm a huge fan of PyCharm, the tool and the team, and I'm happy to bring it to you. Do you like storytelling? Want a job where you can work with the Python community and help people with their professional development? PyCharm is doing big things this year and they have an exciting job opening that you should consider. Developer Advocate. It's a good job doing good work with a great company. Learn more and apply at talkpython.fm slash pycharm dash advocate dash job. The link is in the episode show notes. Charlie, welcome to Talk Python to me. Thanks so much. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. I'm going to talk about making Python code fast. Built some pretty interesting tools here with Rough. We'll see about integrating Rust into Rough. And there's a lot of cool tools around this sort of code quality side of things, right? Like Black took off in ways I think even though Lukash didn't maybe imagine it would take off. And this is kind of in that same realm. And of course, and exactly, yeah. it plays well with Black uh, along the way as well. So we'll, we'll get to talk all about those things. It's going to be tons of fun to dig into them. But before we get to it, let's start with your story. How do you get into programming in Python and Rust? Yeah, yeah. So I got into programming, I guess, the summer before I went to college. When I guess I was supposed to be like doing something fun, I, I taught myself Java and uh, it was the sort of thing that a lot of people had told me I would like, but I never really had a chance to dig into. I ended up, I, you know, I went to school, majored in computer science. So, you know, did a bunch of internships while I was in college. And then when I, my sort of junior year internship in my first year out of school, I worked at a company called Khan Academy, which mm-hmm. is like an education technology company. And at the time, this is less true now, 
But at the time they were a really big Python child. I mean, they had one of the, one of the biggest like app engine deployments. It was like Khan Academy and like Snapchat and like a couple other, couple other, maybe Spotify or someone. Wow. I had no idea. I I mean, obviously, yeah, yeah, I'm obviously I'm familiar with Khan Academy, K-H-A-N. I'm sure a lot of people are, Yeah, but I didn't realize that one, they were such a GCP customer and that was Python. Was that Flask or Django on GCP or what was it? Uh, It was like Flask on App Engine. Yeah. We did not use Django, Yeah, but they actually, I mean, it's a whole nother story, but they did a big Go rewrite after I left, which is also super interesting. I mean, it's not Python, but it is still very interesting. Um, Just like migrating a system that big from any language to any other language is always pretty interesting. But at Khan Academy, yeah, I, you know, I did, I did some Python. I would say that like, I mostly did web and we can talk a little bit more about this because like really through my career, I've kind of jumped between a lot of different ecosystems. And so like at Khan Academy, I did, I think a year of Android and did a little bit of iOS, did a lot of web, did a little bit of Python. And then most recently I worked at a company called Spring Discovery, which is like a computational biotech company. And Mm -hmm. everything we were doing was based on computer vision. So we'd like take really high resolution pictures of cells and then try to model like the way that they change when you add drugs. Wow. Okay. Which is, yeah, it's pretty wild. I mean, I came into that with no awesome. bio background. I joined as like second engineer and build out a lot of our like data and machine learning platform. That was kind of a crash course in building like a massive system in Python, right? We were doing scientific computing. So it made a lot of sense to use Python. So we ended up using Python for like almost everything. Yeah. Yeah. Python's a really good choice for the web, but it's like the de facto choice for data science, right? Like it's... Yes. Yeah, exactly. There's not a whole lot of other choices. Whereas on the web, there's, you know, five or six other platforms and languages that are also contenders for that that space, right? Right, right. So, you know, we built out what I consider to be like a fairly large Python code base. It was like a big monorepo. And, you know, I spent kind of around four or five years, you know, building that out and like really writing a lot of Python every day. That's where like a lot of my Python experience comes from. And like that experience specifically also informed a lot of, a lot of growth. And, you know, I can talk more about sort of how those experiences intertwined, but that's kind of my Python background. It must've been really fun to explore some of this visualizing cells and interacting with, you know, microscopes and. That was amazing. Uh, yeah. All those I mean, the, things, yeah. the coolest part of the job was just that if you bucket it like really crudely, like a third of our team were sort of like software engineers or like data scientists, machine learning researchers. And then, you know, a third were, you know, wet lab biologists, PhDs. And so every day I was like working directly with scientists and like building software for scientists, which was just like a super cool thing to be able to do as part of a small team. Yeah. But uh, yeah, read a lot of Python. (laughs) That's awesome. I worked at a place that was a bunch of PhD researchers doing eye tracking, like not Apple, but your actual eyes. Like, what are you looking at? Wrote the, the yeah, software yeah. to actually control the device and get all the information off of it. And then like analyze that and put, you know, generate like reports for the scientists and stuff. And it's, there's a, there's a special kind of cool for software that touches like reality, right? Yeah. I mean, it adds a lot of complications. <laughs> of course <laughs> it's it very cool. <laughs> You don't get exact numbers. You want to test it like, uh, you got to approximate all the things. But still, yeah, that sounds like a super fun job. How did it inform Rough? Like, what are some of the experiences that... Yeah, totally. Just so people know, Rough is like a, a super oh, fast yeah. no, lender. Just give us the quick elevator pitch so they, they, they know what the heck Rough is. We'll dive more into it later. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So Rough is what I call an extremely fast Python lender. <laughs> if you've used lenders in Python in the past, you've probably used something like 
Playgate or PyLint or maybe like PyCode style, you know, maybe use other tools to help manage your code style like Black or like AutoPepe, all this stuff that deals with effectively code style. Mm. So Rust is a linter. It looks at your source code and it tries to report back and tell you as your flag and tell you about issues with it. And those could be stylistic issues, like this variable name is not great, or they could be, you know, like logical issues, like you reference a variable here that isn't defined. Right. I think there's a lot that distinguishes Ruff, but like the thing that I think caught a lot of people's attention was just how fast it is. So I sort of hate benchmarks, like, because no matter how much time you like put into a benchmark, like it's always wrong from like a certain perspective and like people always complain about them. But right. I think Ruff is comfortably like somewhere in 10 to 100 times faster. Some people even say like a thousand times faster on their setup. So it can be like really, really dramatically faster. And it can also do a lot of auto fixing, which is kind of a distinctive feature that I don't know that many other tools. In, there are certainly tools that do code transformation in Python, but mm-hmm. like Pyland and Flakegate and such uh, don't do this. So for lots right. of the errors that Ruff will flag, it can actually fix the code for you and fix the issue for you, which is okay. a big time saver. I don't know if this is one of them, but just to give people an idea, like one of the errors or warnings rather that it'll give you is you have an F string, but you're not leveraging its F string capabilities, right? I'll just say F quote, and then it has just static text, a little literal string. So it doesn't need the F, right? Theoretically, you could say auto fix and just it drops the F for you. It's like, yeah, you don't need that, right? Yeah. And, you know, we can also like go the other direction. So like if you're doing a bunch of like percent string formatting or Mm -hmm. you're using like the dot format uh, style helpers, we're actually, we can fix at least one of those right now. And yeah. strings are really complicated, but like we can actually rewrite, I think the dot format calls into strings, which is cool. So, Fantastic. you know, another thing we can do is we can kind of keep your code like modern in a way. We've taken a lot of inspiration from other tools, like Pi Upgrade 2 has like so much cool stuff and functionality in it, if you haven't seen it. And we've, we take some of the rules from Pi Upgrade and basically re-implement yeah. them in Rust and package them into a single interface and a single tool. So you just install one thing and you get, you know, 370 something rules. I can uh, assert that it is indeed fast. Uh, we'll we'll oh, dive cool. into it a little <laughs> bit later, but I, I ran it on uh, Talk Python Training, the courses website that I have. And I think that's got 20,000 lines of Python and it's it's instant. It's like you press enter and then out, you know, the, the stuff is just printing out. These are the things that found, which is it's pretty awesome. So back to your data science work. Yeah, yeah. What, how are you, what you're doing influence your creation of Rough? Like, why not just use yeah. um, Flake 8 or something like that? You know, like I said, I'd like worked in a lot of other ecosystems where with sort of like stricter languages, right? Like Java and whatever else. And it's not to say those ecosystems are better, but I often come at the stuff from a perspective of wanting a lot of like static analysis tooling. So we had like a really heavily typed code base. We used... Like we use MyPy, mm-hmm. you know, we use Black, we use Flake 8, we used iSort, we used, I don't know, like doc formatter. There's like a lot of different stuff that we use. Yeah. You know, really my job was like, I was the maintainer of this big system. And like most of, like a lot of people in the team were effectively like clients of that code base. So they were kind of like using the stuff that, you know, I and, and some others were building as like a library. And so I had to maintain like, it's really big system. Mm-hmm. And like the more static tools you have, you know, in my opinion, it, it just like, greatly increases the leverage that you can have as a maintainer. So we use a lot of tooling and I think like a couple of things happened. One, you know, I was spending a lot of my time in Python, but I was also doing a lot of web. And so 
you yeah. know, like one week I'd be doing Python, the next I'd be going and doing like React and TypeScript and whatever else. And so people complain a lot about web tooling and like, you know, there are certainly lots of valid complaints about it, but there's been a lot of interesting innovation, I think, in that space. And I was certainly influenced by some of it, just seeing some of the tools that came out and how fast they were. Sure. And the fact that a lot of those tools were not being written in JavaScript sort of intentionally to make them super performant was pretty interesting to me. So like, I don't know, I don't want to like name drop a bunch of tools, but you know, in the web ecosystem, more tooling is being written in like Go, and Rust, mm -hmm. even some other sort of more out there languages like Zig. And to me, that was kind of an interesting thing. It was like, well, does the Python tooling have to be written in Python? Like what does, like, why does that have to be the case? And like, what does it buy you and what do you lose? So that was one thing. The other was we actually started to do a lot of Rust Python hybrid stuff in our own code base. You know, our code base was fully Python. And over time, we took some of the like really performance critical pieces and started to rewrite them in Rust and expose them to the Python side using some these like really great Rust Python hybrid tools that, you know, maybe we'll get into later. So like one example is we were dealing with image data. So like a common thing we had to do is just like download a lot of image files, like really, really fast. Right. And so, we, you know, we wrote that in Python. We wrote like a bunch of versions that use all sorts of like multiprocessing, threading, and like we tried everything. And then eventually we like rewrote it in Rust. And so we had a really simple, you know, Rust module that would just download files really fast. And that we exposed that as a Python API. Um, so like from the Python code, it just looked like Python, but the actual code that was running and, and the way it was you know, built and executed all went through Rust. Right. So you have these big data, big, let's say big computation problems where you're like, you know, this, this could be better. At the same time, we're looking at this happening on the web side, you know, Webpack or whatever it is. And it's like, this is, this is way better. We can do this in Python, but, but we aren't. So let's start, right? Probably you got yeah. a little experience there and you're like, what else can I build with Rust now that I know how? Yeah, I was seeing, you know, the way that this innovation was happening in the web. I was seeing specifically the Rust Python, like opportunity from what mm -hmm. we were doing. And then I was, you know, frankly, like feeling a fair amount of frustration just with the performance of a lot of the existing tools. Like, I don't know. I'm always really careful with how I talk about this stuff because I hate being, I'm really like not a hater and like, I've actually gotten like so much value out of like all of those tools, but I was being like, mm, well, should it really take like one to two minutes to limit my code? Like, couldn't it be much faster, right? Like it's like a big code base. And like, as you add more plugins and everything else, it really like changes like how you feel about the tool, right? Like it's no longer like something I just run and get feedback. It's like, oh, I have to run the, the linter now. Oh, I have right. to run the flow now. And I was sort of craving that. Yeah, and if you're doing it on a team, my experience, yeah. at least, has been some people in the team continue to run it because they find more value than stress. And others are like, eh, I'm not running that stupid thing. But then their problems get pushed onto the people who still care. And so then it creates this kind of like a tension, like oh, Joe's code is always kind of crappy because he won't lend it. But then like when I check out his code, my stuff starts reporting. You know, like those are the weird dynamics that happen from tools that are like super slow unit tests or super slow linting or, or those types of things where certain people stop working with them and others don't. And then, then you get these weird yeah. tensions. So having it fast, there's like real value to that. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Cox Automotive. With brands like Kelly Blue Book, AutoTrader, Dealer.com, and more, Cox Automotive flips the script on how we buy, sell, own, and use our cars. And now, the team at Cox Automotive is looking for software engineers, data scientists, 
scrum masters, and other tech experts to help create meaningful change in the industry. Do you want to be part of a collaborative workplace that values your time and work-life balance? Consider joining Cox Automotive. Visit talkpython.fm slash cox today. Thank you to Cox Automotive for sponsoring the show. I left spring in like mid to late August. I started working on Rav along with like a couple other projects and mm-hmm. I never built a linter before. <laughs> so mm-hmm. like I didn't, yeah, I didn't really know what I was doing, but it felt maybe this is like a little bit of hubris or not, I guess, because like it seems to be working. But like I was kind of <laughs> like, I'll start with a linter because it feels like a tractable like scope of problem. I was like, mm, type checker. I know that's hard. And like, I don't really know much about it. A linter, I feel like I can learn like some of the concepts. I have a good understanding of like, of like how it might work. To me, when I look at it, I think linting people's code, like abstract syntax trees and stuff. I'm like, ah, oh, that doesn't sound like yeah. an easy problem to me, but it's good that you saw it that way. Because you, you did, did get through it. Yeah, well, the first version I released was like very limited. It was sort of, I sort of needed to get it out because I wasn't sure that people would actually really care that much about like what I was doing. Yeah. Because like I've described to you a lot of like pain points. They're also sort of like opinion, <laughs> right? But like, yeah. you know, I wasn't like, like a faster linter, like, like who cares was sort of, I wasn't sure. Yeah. So, you know, when I released it, I was like, I want to prove it's possible. I want to like have reasonable confidence that the performance won't get worse or much worse as I expand it. But I only supported like, I don't know, maybe like 20 rules, which was fi- fine with me because I was really trying to prove a point more than, you know, get people to, to adopt it even. Right. Well, and a lot of times go into that experience, even if very few people used it, you learn fantastic things, right? Yeah, I learned so much. And um, I read a ton of code. Like I read all, I've read like a lot of, I've read like a lot of source code now. So I've read like all of like, you know, PySlakes, like PyDoc style, PyCode style, like, you know, cause I've spent time like trying to re-implement a lot of those, a lot of those rules and like understand how they do things. Uh, and you just learn a lot from like reading and trying stuff. Yeah. Rust is sort of like a whole nother thing where, you know, I did some Rust at spring, but I would say that building rough was really like my Rust learning experience. I think I had to kind of try to build something from scratch to like really understand the language. Sure. Everything I did in spring. You can do all the tutorials. Yeah. And I was like, I was trying to get in and out as quickly as possible. No, no, I just like, you know, I didn't do the initial Rust migration at Spring. I worked with another like super talented engineer who did that. And so every time I went into, you know, and I made a bunch of changes to it, but every time I was going in and out, I was like, I just need to like ship this and like move on. Like, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time like really understanding everything that's going on here. I just want to get it to work. And so I needed to like sit down and like really like focus and be presented with like a blank plate, I think, to, to learn and just like fail a lot and like build stuff that didn't compile, right? And figure <laughs> out how to resolve those problems. Yeah. It's honestly, it's a tough, it is a tough learning curve. I'm sure that it is. I started out in C++ and so I, I know there are harder languages and there are easier languages. So I'm Eddie, never I'm in not, line with C++. <laughs> it's, I'm never, you're, you're not missing that much, I would say. Eddie out there says rough is so awesome i actually changed all the switch statements in my python 310 code back to if else blocks so i could switch to rough which is wow it's pretty awesome that's super nice and slightly embarrassing because we don't support <laughs> mat we don't support match statements. You don't support the match that's yeah. the one that's the one big language language feature that we don't support yet you could just kind of comment it out like it just we're going to just ignore whatever is in the switch it must be fine on to the next part yeah exactly <laughs> right 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, not for your code, but for for lending. Let's start our dive in with uh, this comment from Tyler. He says, what are the differences between linters like rough and flake eight, those versus code stylers or formatters like black? And maybe rough lives in the middle of that spectrum. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, there's and it's certainly like, like, like you said, it's like a, a spectrum, right? So I guess there's a couple of different ways to think about it. And it, with those tools specifically, like some of the responsibilities have like in my mind, at least shifted a bit over time. So for example, like Flake 8, it does a lot of, it doesn't change your code at all. And it'll just tell you about issues. And those issues could be style issues. Like you have extra white space here or, yeah. I don't know. What's another big thing? This line is too long. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it could also be like a logical issue, which is something that Black wouldn't touch. So it might be like this import is unused. So on the one end, you have like, you know, different collections of rules and maybe not really changing the code, just kind of telling you about it. Black is different in that Black just reformats your code. So it does, it's not actually aware of like the logic in the code. Like it doesn't know that an import's unused. It, it doesn't know that function is never called. Yeah. It just takes, you know, that abstract, well, not, not exactly the abstract syntax tree, but it basically preserves your code as is and just tries to restyle it. And so, you know, it's interesting because like if you use Black, you probably don't need a lot of style linting. Like if you're using Black to format your code, a lot of the rules in Flake 8 aren't that relevant anymore. So will say something like, you should have followed the rules of this, but Black automatically follows those rules for you, right? So they're kind of, yeah. you don't need to correct the line length because Black will wrap it because that's what Black does, <laughs> right? Yeah, or even like, you know, if you have like X equals one with like no spaces between the X and the equals and the equals and the one, like the linter will yell at you for that, but Black sticks us that for you. So a lot of people will turn off those rules. You know, this is why I say the responsibilities have shifted a bit over time. Yeah. I think you're right that rough, like it kind of sits in the middle. We do less stylistic linting for this exact reason. Like I use black a lot. Black is like immensely popular. So I actually like strong, like heavily deprioritized, like all of the stylistic rules that are made redundant by black. Okay. The difference is we do do a lot of that automatic fixing. So like we'll, we can remove unused imports for you. We can even do like a lot of more complicated rewrites. Like if you're using, if you're using like a dictionary constructor, like the actual, you know, DICT parentheses arguments, we can actually rewrite as a literal. If you have the rules enabled and you want to do that, you know, there's like a bunch of rules around like comprehensions and literals and we can do those rewrites too. So, you know, it, does, it can do like style and reformatting, but it's somewhere in the middle. Yeah. The fact that it makes some changes, but it doesn't go completely all in like black is... Kind of why I think it lives a little bit in the middle there. Yeah. One of the things that I think might give people a lot of brought a, a lot of faith or, or a willingness to give it a try is there's a lot of projects out here that are large projects that people would know that have adopted, actively adopted and started using Rough. I saw a quote from Sebastian Ramirez from Fast API. Right now in the audience, we have Olfek says the next release of Hatch, which I hope to do this re- this weekend, will have all the new projects generated with config for a linting environment that uses Rough, which I think is pretty excellent. Maybe speak to uh, speak to some of that, like about these these projects adopting it and how that's helped you. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I never expected that. Like this, maybe that like goes without saying. I think you have to be like super arrogant to release something and expect a bunch of these people to use it. Yeah, it's been kind of wild. You know, initially there were a couple big project that I would call like really early adopters and they helped shape the project a lot. Like 
Pydantic was a very early adopter. Zulip was a very early adopter. Fast API was actually like a pretty early adopter too. Okay. And then like Pandas and uh, Airflow and stuff, those kind of are more recent. Okay. It's been a very interesting like to reflect on how that's happened because on the one hand, it's like sort of ridiculous that all these projects would migrate over <laughs> because I'm on, I don't even really have like a proper versioning system right now. Like I'm on V00. 225 or something. I basically release like every day and I consider like, I don't really make, we've made like very few breaking changes, but like in theory, we could make breaking change. I don't want to, but like hmm. if you subscribe to Simber, like we could make changes like that. You know, there's not really like docs, like the docs are just like this huge readme. It's kind of wild, right? We don't support like all the Python 3.10 features, right? We don't support match statements. So on the one hand, it's kind of wild that all these projects would move over. I think there are a couple of things that help a lot. So one is that the entire time I've been like very, very focused on compatibility with existing tools. And that comes at a lot of cost. Like if there are things that I like don't agree with, right, or whatever else, like I sometimes still support them or implement them. And, you know, but the the upside is like, it's very easy for people to migrate. Right. It might change nothing potentially, right? Just, it just goes faster. And over time, like, you know, we don't have like a third party plugin system. We've just like implemented everything like in Rust, like as part of Rust. Uh-huh. I viewed that as like, I'm just going to look at the most popular plugins and the most important rules. And I'm just going to figure out like, what's a blocker for whom? And like, what do I need to implement in order to like unblock people and like make sure they can use it? Is there a way for people to let you know which of those are really important to them? Like, for example, if there's some big project out there's like, we would love to move to rough, but there's this one, <laughs> one plugin we're waiting on. Yeah. I mostly hear about it in issues and there are a couple issues where it's like kind of a big GitHub issue. It'll be like implement this plugin and yeah. a lot of people will come and like give it a thumbs up or whatever. We have pretty good coverage now, actually. Like, I mean, there is a long tail, like there's a big ecosystem of like flake plugins. You know, sometimes someone will come along and and ask for a plugin that I haven't haven't really like seen before, and then it's just a calculus of like, what do I want to prioritize? Um, right. How much work is it? All that yeah, exactly. Stuff. Is this a a super easy line uh, thing to do? Like, oh, the line is too long. That's easy. Or is it you know rewrite this? Yeah, this generator in this other interesting way. Yeah, that happened with well, a lot of people want like I don't know how to pronounce this library, but like Darglint, like D R Glint. Darglint. I don't know. Anyway. I would go with that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Darglint. Let's go with that. It's very popular, but I've looked at the source. It's pretty complicated. So like I need to, you know, that's something I can just like turn around in a day. But like, you know, I yeah. hear like what people want. And 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 I mean, some of those migrations though, I didn't even know about them until they'd happened. Yeah, yeah, of course. People come, they submit issues, I look at their profiles, I see what they're working on, I get a sense for what the projects are. Right. So mm-hmm. sometimes I know and then I'm kind of fixing things, knowing that hopefully it's unblocking them in different ways. But I think, like I said, I think the compatibility piece is like really huge. And I actually think that like Black and iSword and like the popularity of those things has made compatibility for me like a little bit easier because I can just like adhere to what they do. And then hopefully there's like no code changes. Yeah, they centralize around what like Black is the truth. And then we'll <laughs> then we'll stop. We'll debate beyond that. But like we're just going to accept Black because it's no fun to, to go commas on the end of the line, no commas on the trailing thing in the list. You know, like that, those kind of debates just go on and on. Yeah, and, I know. Yeah, I, I know. think Black kind of solves that by just making a decision for you. And not everyone's totally happy with every choice, but 
it stops the debate and that actually probably wins the day for most of them. One thing that's interesting here that I'm, I'm noticing about these projects in the, the large open source projects that have adopted Rough, not all of them, surely, but many of them like Pydantic and Polars and so on, themselves are adopting Rust. Do you see a synergy of those like, well, we're rewriting Pydantic core in Rust like Samuel Colvin is, or the folks behind Polars are like, that's the core of it is about Rust. And you know that's the RS on the end, I think. So there might be a little extra draw there, right? I think it's just more like um, like spiritual alignment. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, like, because it doesn't like, matter. It's not like, it's not, no, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> but spiritually. But there's, yeah, and there's a little bit of a bug. Uh, sorry, bug in the sense of like, um, like once people start writing some stuff in Rust and improving their Python, they're kind of like more open to like, you know, trying out other things that are written in Rust and, and so on. So it's, I mean, that community has like been very interesting to, to sort of watch and be a part of the like Rust Python community. It still feels like pretty nascent, but there are, yeah. the tooling is actually like really great. And, you know, we could talk about that more, but like, yeah, there was definitely like a bunch of initial setup for actually like distributing Rust PyPI and making yeah. Pip installable. But now that that's over, it all like just works. And I mean, I wouldn't say it's like requires no effort, but it's, actually pretty amazing like how like the degree of integration and how much you can do now with these tools like pio3 and and maturin and, and some others that was one of the things that was a really nice surprise for me as well is how easy it is to install right like unless you told me unless it wasn't part of you know the elevator pitch you know the little one sentence subtitle yeah. on the project like you would know from a interacting perspective which is kind of exactly what you want. I also think that it's really, there's some value to having these popular projects adopt Rough because Martin and audience, for example, says, I found out about Rough by looking to see what Fast API does because presumably it's a ton of respect for Fast API and Sebastian, what his choices. So yeah, it's, it's got to sort of create the snowball effect as well. This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by User Interviews. As a developer, how often do you find yourself talking back to products and services that you use? Sometimes it may be frustration over how it's working poorly, and if they just did such and such, it would work better, and it's easy to do. Other times, it might be delight. Wow, they auto-filled that section for me. How did they even do that? Wonderful. Thanks. While this verbalization might be great to get the thoughts out of your head, did you know that you can earn money for your feedback on real products? User Interviews connects researchers with professionals that want to participate in research studies. There is a high demand for developers to share their opinions on products being created for developers. Aside from the extra cash, you'll talk to people building products in your space. You will not only learn about new tools being created, but you'll also shape the future of the products that we all use. It's completely free to sign up and you can apply to your first study in under five minutes. The average study pays over $60. However, many studies specifically interested in developers pay several hundreds of dollars for a one-on-one -on -one interview. Are you ready to earn extra income from sharing your expert opinion? Head over to talkpython.fm slash user interviews to participate today. The link is in your podcast player show notes. Thank you to user interviews for supporting the show. One thing that's a little bit overlooked about like why that adoption is useful is that it actually like feeds back into the project in like so many great ways. So, you know, for example, like if you're, DAGSER adopted Rough and like they 
they have like a really big like Python monorepo with like, I don't know, like 50 or 100 separate like Python modules or packages in there. Mm -hmm. And they filed like a bunch of issues about around how can we make rough better for monorepos. And so now they can run rough once and it runs over all their separate projects that can all have their own configuration. And that's like a really, really powerful thing. And something that like, if I was just sort of sitting around like building rough, like, I don't know that I would have known to prioritize that or what it should look like. And so like actually like working with people who want to adopt routes and like figuring out what stops them from using it provides like a ton of value to the project and, and just prioritization. Like a lot of the eyesort stuff, I pushed on it a lot when I started because rough does import sorting. So you can use it if you want in lieu of eyesort. And we implement a lot of the same configuration options, not all the same. Eyesort just is like really configurable. So we implement we sort of implement them as they get requested. But, and, but anyway, I prioritized that stuff because a lot of people wanted it and they were coming to the issues and being like, hey, this would really help me adopt it, blah, blah, blah. So just like getting the feedback and like hearing what's blocking people, like that itself is like so valuable for the project. Right. And you have a lot of people involved in these larger projects. So they, and they have specific polished needs, right? Like there's a lot of people who work on Pandas or Fast API and those are mature code bases. It's not just a pet project, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those are very mature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's good, but also it's a challenge. One other thing I would like to point out, you know, you started off by introducing Rough saying, um, maybe people will be interested. I don't really know if they will. Maybe they will. That'd be cool. You know, 6.5, thousand stars. That's a, it's a non-trivial amount of interest. That's a, a lot of love. Yeah. 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 And like, I don't know. One thing that I I, I sometimes feel weird like highlighting all the big projects because one thing that I really appreciate is just like anyone who's willing to try a tool like this. Sure. Like moving tools and trying new tools is like a big decision. I just like really appreciate everyone who says nice things about it or everyone who's like willing to give a try, give it a, a try, like no matter what they're working on. Yeah. It's nice to have a platform to say that out loud so hopefully people hear it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the other thing I want to highlight about the repo here not just the stars, but when I look at a project and I want to sort of assess, I really want to adopt this thing. Do I want to make this part of my dependencies or things or layers that I got to live with here? And if it goes sideways, I got to change something is, you know, how old is the project? How active is the project? And so on. So look, we started this podcast 40 minutes ago. The last commit was 52 minutes ago <laughs> to the repo, oh, yeah. which is sorry. Yeah, it was kind of that's awesome. <laughs> I mean, you're like, but are you looking here, and it's then it's it's yesterday, it's it's last week. I want to point out there's just a lot of activity. 78 contributors. It's a very lively project, it's not just something that's cool, but you know, there's a lot of interest and energy in it, which I think is a very strong signal that it's something people should be comfortable adopting. Thanks, I appreciate you uh, calling that out. I think, I guess a couple things. One, that's actually something that when I talked before about why would these big projects adopt this thing that like seems really experimental, that's actually something that comes up a lot is, and I'm not in the conversation, but obviously I'm sleuthing a little bit yeah. on the PRs, right? And they're <laughs> saying, well, it doesn't support X, but it's like really actively developed. And I'm like very confident that they will support that, you know, at some point. Interesting. Yeah. And so like, just like having something that, is clearly very actively worked on, I think is quite like appealing and comforting to people. Yeah. I actually like do feel bad saying this, but like one of my favorite, not favorite, but a kind of a, an interaction that happens on the repo is someone will file an issue and they'll say, 
This is actually also a bug that exists in the, let's call it the upstream implementation. So the existing Python version of that tool also has that. Right, bug. like PyLand or and Flake like, 8 or something like that. They're yeah. like, it does this, but we think it's wrong. <laughs> we disagree with it or something, right? Or there's an issue where, you know, the maintainer is like, oh yeah, this is broken. Yeah, yeah, okay. It's really not, like the reason I saw that thing is like, I, you know, every project is different and like every maintainer, like most people, like everyone's doing this like for free, right? Like I'm not, I'm not here to like call out other maintainers, but I think it's a very satisfying interaction for people when, you know, they link to an issue, it's been open for, for maybe for like years. And then I can actually just like fix it in like, like pretty quickly and ship a release in the same day. And like that, I think that's like a really like powerful thing that resonates with people a lot. It's just the feeling of like stuff getting shipped and like yeah. things getting fixed. And yeah, I'm like, you know, I'm working on this full time. So like, I'm fortunate to be able to do that. And like, I totally get it that like other projects just have, are in different states and stuff. Um, but right. I get a lot of, you know, out of that and, and people are always super appreciative. And so it all just like funnels into, you know, giving me energy. Eddie uh, has called you a, a commit machine. Literally every time I update my project <laughs> dependencies, I'm guaranteed to see new stuff on rough, uh, a new version of rough. I appreciate that. It, you know, it's, I do appreciate that. Like, yeah, I do try to write a lot of code, but you know, it's obviously not just, not just me. And like the contributors, the contributors have been awesome. And I think, I mean, one thing I'm particularly impressed by is just the number of, number of people who, like, I don't even know if I always believe them when they say this, but like just the number of people who are like, this is my first time writing Rust or like, I'm really not good at Rust or like blah, blah, blah. And, here's something and then amazing. they just like, <laughs> yeah. And they just like make like great contribution. They're like, Hey, I'm yeah. trying to learn Rust. And I obviously love that stuff. Like yeah. people are interested in learning Rust. I actually think Rust is like a great, a great project and like a great uh, place for that. But I mean, there are people who are working on stuff, especially the stuff that I just like, are, it's like big things that I can't like focus all my time on and just like having great contributors who are like really, you know, like thoughtful and like prolific. Every project is lucky to have people like that. How old is the project? When did you start it? In August. Yeah. So it, not, not that old. My brain is like melting, but it's somewhere, I, yeah, I think it's like, like somewhere between four and six months. Okay. Did you say you're working on this full time? As, as, as like your full-time job? Yeah. Okay. And so how's that work? Is that GitHub sponsors or are you employed by someone to completely work on it? What's the story? That sounds awesome. Still figuring out, you know, I'll, I'll probably share more on that soon. Okay. I don't have sponsors enabled right now. Still figuring out exactly what, like how I want that all to evolve. Right. I am working on it full-time. I don't anticipate that changing in any way. Like I, I'm really happy in getting so much out of this and uh, yeah, I think there are lots of ways to make it work. And if not rough, I want to be working on like other Python tooling. So, you know, I think there's like more stuff to come. Well, it certainly is neat tooling. Uh, let's go, let's go through the uh, GitHub page here a little bit. So we've talked about the speed a couple of times. We talked about ways in which that happens. You know, Rust is a, an important part, but it sounds like it's not the only reason that it's fast. You have a, a chart with the obvious like little asterisk caveat benchmarks it's reproducible you know all, like all yeah, the stuff's yeah, yeah. in the readme but yeah that's fast in this situation but my situation is different in which case you know such and such right but for some large code base we've got rough in 0.3 seconds <laughs> autoflake at six pylint at over 60 seconds just barely this is on the c python code base from scratch which is it's pretty ridiculous and i already told you the numbers i don't have a, a a millisecond number, but it it appears to be instant on 20,000 lines of Python code that I wrote. 
And it found some issues, which I, I thought would already be discovered. So that's that's pretty excellent. Nice. It's nearly Python 3.11, 100% compatible, right? You said the one major language feature is the match statement. But other than that, it's it's compatible, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. It supports some of the other language features like that are maybe less um, high profile, like the parenthesized with statements and stuff like that. But it doesn't support the pattern, structural pattern matching yet. Got it. So it's got the autofix support near parity with the Flake 8 rule set, which is cool. You talked about the way that you keep the performance fast, but still have yeah. parity with Flake 8 is you have native re-implementations of the Flake 8 plugins. That's right. Yeah. So we re-implement, we re-implement everything in Rust. And a lot of the time that's like me or whoever's working on it, like looking actually at the plugin and like the logic it uses and, and, and trying to mimic that in a high fidelity way. And Often we'll like try to use the same, same test suite and really try to make sure that we're compatible, except in cases where we think there there's like an actual sort of factual error. Yeah. Why rough is fast? The plugin stuff, there's a lot of interesting stuff to say about like plugins because I think Rust is a big part of why rough is fast, but there are a couple of other big pieces. So we take a lot of care in the code base to like only do necessary work. If that makes sense. So, you know, we support 300 something rules, but depending on which exact rules you have enabled, we'll skip a lot of unnecessary work. Okay. That can help a lot. So, you know, it's, it's basically tailored to how much you're using it. So like if you're not using it as an import sorter, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that we get, which I would think about it. But the other like really big one is because everything is sort of implemented in like one system, there's a lot of work that would normally be duplicated between a lot of different tools that can actually just be done once. So the way to think of that is like, if you look at like Flake 8 with and Flake 8 doc strings is maybe one example, which uses PyDocStyle. Sorry, I know it's like a huge, it's like a tree of tools. <laughs> you know, if you add that plugin, so PyFlakes is going to parse your source code and turn that into an AST. And then PyDocStyle actually has basically its own parser that will go back over the source code and look at all the tokens and extract the doc string. And if you have a bunch of different tools, like some of them will share that abstract syntax tree, but a lot of them end up doing work that other tools are also doing. Right. Because they can't count on necessarily that being done or the, the plugin system doesn't provide work that's already been done to them. So they got to start over anyway, right? Yeah. Or they might want to do things in like a slightly different, maybe you have like three different plugins. Like, I guess one example is a lot of plugins like need some way to tell if a function is like public or private. And it's not like super complicated, but you know, it's not like totally trivial. Like you need to account for functions that are in inside of classes. Like, is it a public method or private method? You need to account for functions that are inside of other functions, right? So there's like a lot of rules actually for like determining what's like public and private. And, you know, you might have one lint rule that's like all public methods need to have doc string. And you might have another rule that's like all public methods need to have type annotations. And if you have two separate plugins that are doing that, they both need a way to actually like extract that information. And, you know, it's not necessarily the case that like, it'll be way faster to do it with one pass and one, I, I think it will, it may not be like orders of magnitude, but the other thing is you have a lot of like consistency. So like, you know, it's defined in one way. You're not going to be at the whims of like small decisions that the tools have to make for us as like maintainers and like building rough. You know, there's a lot of stuff you like don't have to implement multiple times. Right. I can leverage that and like go and implement other lint rules and I don't have to like figure out from scratch 
how do I determine like what's public and private? And how do I like extract all the doc strings from a file? Like we already have all that infrastructure. So there's kind of like I see. economies of scale, I guess, to like implementing new stuff. Like it sort of snowballs a little bit. Like the tool gets more powerful, it gets kind of easier to do things. I mean, I think you'd be surprised like how much of building a tool, I don't know about you personally, but like I was surprised by like how much of building a tool like this is just, um, it's a, you know, like settings and like configuration and like how do people express their settings? What does the command line interface look like? How do you find all the Python files in a directory? Like it sounds trivial, but like, yeah. do you also want to respect like get ignores? Do you want users to be able to ignore files? Like there's a lot of rules. And so again, it's like, if I look at a new Python tool, you know, that wants to go off and implement something, they might have to implement all that stuff themselves. But for us, it's like we have all that infrastructure in place. And so if we want to build a new fun piece of functionality, it's just sort of defining the rule and we get all this other stuff for free. Yeah, you can you can definitely build on the layers that are in place because it's it's all together. It's cool. Yeah. All right. Let's let's look through here a little bit. Like I said, there's the the testimonials from the different projects like Brian from Bokeh or Sebastian from Fast API and and whatnot there. But let's start with installing it. Like I said, you would know that this wasn't just a Python tool you could use. Pip install rough. That's the way to go. But when I installed it, I didn't pip install. I uh, pipx installed it. Are you a fan of pipx? Yeah, I use pipx. Yeah, to me, it seems like rough is something I want to run on different projects. And I just kind of want rough in my tool set. And so I I pipx installed rough. What do you think? Good idea? Is it better to put it, say, like in a per version at per project? Like everything, I think it probably depends. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I definitely saw a lot of stuff with pipx. I think the one thing that I, the one issue with rough, and I guess I recognize why this can be annoying for some people, for sure. Like we release a lot. And so if projects don't pin their dependencies, then they can start to see like new errors as we add new rules, which I guess in some sense is like a breaking change, but I don't really consider it as such. It's like, you know, they yeah, have, it's like they have the like, let's say they have the like, like eight simplify rule set enabled and we add a new rule and that gets turned on for them. So anyway, the point is uh, like people, I guess I recommend pinning rough if you're using it for a project, which I mean, with pipx, you're just going to stay on one version. Right. So you run pipx you know, upgrade dash all or whatever, or upgrade that thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. It's doing it to a sense. It's kind of a pin, but it's pinned globally and it gets upgraded globally. Uh, and that not not per project, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, that's kind of okay. But if I was on a large team, you know, lots of people who are working on it, you might want to control that more. I can see that. We have a homebrew distribution uh-huh. and a Conda distribution on Conda Forge, and then I did those. And then there's everything else was done by other by other people. So I'm like, which is cool, but I'm also means I'm like less familiar with them. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Publishing on Homebrew and, and Conda Forge was like a pretty interesting experience for me, actually, because I've never done that. And I didn't actually really know that much about how those worked. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> that was cool. Hopefully it's useful for people. There's definitely some complexity with like the packaging and release stuff, which I don't know if you want to talk about that or not. But, you know, because we're building Rust, there's like a couple things that we need to do that are a little different from a standard Python package. Maybe just touch on it a bit because what you deliver is a wheel, right? But it's got the compiled Rust yep. bit for me on my ARM64 Mac OS build, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So basically it just means we have to, the wheel is a sort of pre-compiled version of the package as opposed to just giving you the source code. Like if I just gave you the source code and not the wheel, you'd actually need to have Rust installed because you'd have to actually build the thing and install it, yeah. which is, of course, an extremely unreasonable expectation 
<laughs> for for the kind of people who are using this for the most part. Yeah, but before the wheels really became popular, that was part of the step, right? It would, it totally. would just build for you. Yeah. yeah. Or it wouldn't build for you, which was frustrating, but that was part of the step, right? Yeah. Yeah, we just build wheels for all the platforms that I know of. <laughs> is it all CICD? You just push it to some branch and magic happens and then wheels start appearing in places. Whenever I cut a release on GitHub, like I just use like GitHub releases basically, mm-hmm. or I just use GitHub releases. It kicks off a release job and then that's all through GitHub actions. So it, it just has a big matrix, right? Of all the different operating systems. Um, we only have to build, thankfully we only have to build one wheel per operating system. We don't have to build one wheel per Python version which is something that can happen sometimes. And then you have like a mass explosion of number of wheels. <laughs> That's all facilitated with a tool called Maturin, which I'm a big fan of, uh, which is, it's sort of like, uh, I don't know, like setup tools and a bunch of other stuff bundled together, but specifically for shipping mixed Rust Python. So I don't actually really have to like do anything for the most part to make that work. Yeah. My pyproject.toml has, you know, Maturin at the top and I have a Rust project. And I call it and build and it creates a wheel. So it's all like, I don't know. I think it's like super cool. That works. Yeah, that's, that <laughs> sounds very, <laughs> sounds super smooth and super neat. Yeah. And like I said, as a consumer of it, also very smooth, right? It was installed quickly. I didn't have to wait on some build. I didn't need build tools or config that I don't care about or don't use. I'm pretty sure I do have Rust, the Rusty as a CLI option I can use here, but it's you know, you don't want to depend on that, right? No. So you run it uh, on the command line, you say rough, and you point at either a file or a directory or some pattern of files, right? Star yep. type of thing, which is cool. And that gives you the output. You can also do it with a dash dash watch and just run it constantly, which is pretty cool, right? It's fast enough that basically yeah, yeah. as you save it, if there's problems, that'll just appear in the, the terminal, right? Or wherever you yeah. run it. That's kind of a funny example because I based... Or, it's a good example because I, I'm pretty sure I took that exactly from, probably from TSC, which is the TypeScript compiler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They have a watch setting and I like how it works. And so I wanted that for <laughs> So it's just the, that's a very literal example of me looking at another tool from like another space and being like, right. oh, that's really nice. And I wish we had that. Other tools have it too. Yeah, I suppose it's terribly, not terribly difficult to implement, right? You, you take the pattern and you put a, a watch in the OS a watch implementation and you say, call me back when something changes and it, because it's fast, it just reruns, right? But it's still- Yeah, it's exactly right. It, it's very handy though that, that it's there. The other thing that's interesting is uh, you can do it as a pre-commit hook, which is nice. Yeah, that works pretty well for people. I think a lot of people seem to use it. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that it exists. Yeah. A little bit of a weird setup because maybe it's actually not that interesting to talk about, but it's in like a separate repo for sort of like- I can't even really remember. Okay. Interesting. Now, to configure it, it has a, let's say, comprehensive CLI set of options. I can't remember, maybe 15 or so command line options you can pass it. But you can also put put it into the pyproject.toml with things just like tool.ruff and then you can put your various settings in there, right? So it just sort of integrates yep. along that. Or you can have a rough.toml and then put it in there. Yeah, so that's something that I took basically from Hatch. So within Hatch, you can have a pyproject.toml or a hatch.toml. And the hatch.toml kind of like unnests the configuration. Like if you use a rough.toml, you don't need to have like tool.rough at the top and stuff like that. Yeah. I think one thing that I'm quite happy that we have is like the configuration is very like type safe. So if you try to like, you know, so that, that line select equals EF, 
those are like error, like rule codes that are defined in rough. And so if you put, if you replaced F with some string that wasn't, you know, a real rule, you'll get an error immediately saying that, you know, your pyproduct.toml had inval was invalid in like these ways, blah, blah, blah. Interesting. Okay. And similarly, we create what are called like JSON schemas or the configuration. If you're in PyCharm and you open up like a pyproduct.toml and you type tool.rough, it'll actually like show you all the options. It'll actually surface the documentation we have for the options too. Oh, nice. Which okay. is pretty cool. Yeah. I'd like more tools to do that because I think it's like super useful. Uh-huh. I think Poetry has it, but not too many others do. You can get it in VS Code as well, but you need to install a, an extension. It's called like even better Toml, I think. Right. Okay. But uh, I'm happy with those things. I think it makes it like, I think small things like that add up and glad we did them. Yeah. When I looked at the configuration settings, like the exclude directories and various other things, I'm like that's kind of a lot to put on a command line. It would be nice if you could just put it and say rough.toml or pyproject.toml. And then when you just type rough the thing, it it sees that and it, it uses it, right? Yeah. I've kind of like intentionally like not put a lot of these arguments on the command line. Like for that reason, like you can imagine taking everything here and exposing it on the command line, but the command line really just deals with like, how should the thing execute and not like, I don't know, what should the max complexity be of yeah. the, the cape complexity jack and stuff. Well, I think that's fair. Like put the common stuff on the command line and then say, and if you need to go crazy, here's your dash dash config, <laughs> pass that in and, right. and put it in there, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. One thing that I did want to talk about, and you kind of touched on, there's a bunch of the command line arguments. One of the things I did want to talk about is the editor integration. There's a huge bunch of rules here. We got to scroll through on the homepage to get get down uh, to it, yeah, which is, is awesome. That it, No, no, it's good. I mean, these are like all the things that checks that I don't have to think about anymore, which is great. Eventually, though... Jeez, I forgot it was this long. Eventually, though, it has plugins, or maybe that's not quite what I said. It has a, an extension for VS Code, and it has ways to basically add it as a command to PyCharm, right? Which is, yeah, those are both awesome editors that are kind of very friendly to thinking about code formatting and exposing the errors that this would as well. So that's great. You want to just talk about that just real quick? Yeah, totally. So, yeah, we have a VS Code extension. That was my first time writing a VS Code extension. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, the these extensions use or they conform to something called the language server protocol. And effectively, that's sort of like a standard. I believe I'll probably get like a bunch of the history wrong, but I believe it's Microsoft that like publishes and maintains that uh, stack. The nice thing about that protocol is you can actually use like the lot, like most, almost all of the code behind the VS Code extension is actually published as a language server, yeah, a rough LSP. And what that means is you can actually get like the exact same behaviors in all sorts of different editors, if not confined to VS Code. So if you use like NeoVim or like Sublime Text or whatever else, right. those all work this standard protocol and they all have ways to tap into that rough language server protocol. So we have sort of like the standalone LSP, which we have instructions for like Sublime and, and you know, other tools. And then we have the actual extension, which is published on the, the marketplace. Yeah. And those are things I definitely want to like keep supporting. And I view them as like official arms, right, of the project, which I think is nice. So people should know that like, you know, those are official and like I fix bugs in them and all that kind of stuff. Nice. And then for PyCharm, you just add it as an external tool and then you have the rough command around. Or for both of these, if you prefer, you just add it as a pre-commit hook. Yep. That's also. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that then like, 
as you interact with it, it'll run the pre-commit hook as well if you try to check things in. Super cool here. I think this is a, a neat project. I ran it against my project and I thought, you know, everything is pretty much good to go. Where, you know, I've, when I'm using PyCharm, for example, it'll often tell me many of these things. Like it'll say there's a local variable that's unused or it'll automatically remove unused imports. And yet I'm looking at 331 issues, 108 are potentially fixable with the dash dash fix option. So it sounds like there's still a lot of value to like make that part of my tool chain. Yeah. I mean, you know, and feel free to uh, have some of your own opinions about which of those rules actually matter. Sure. And I suspect you can disable them in your config file, right? You can say this rule I don't care about. Yeah. And this is another sort of compatibility thing. Like we API for actually like turning rules on and off is like essentially identical to the Flategate API. So uh, that's also useful for people migrating over. So the no QA, is it the like, com yeah, like comment no QA is one option? Yeah, we, res yep, we respect those too. Mm -hmm. We also respect like iSorts action comments. So yeah, we, we like do a lot of stuff to try and maintain compatibility. Nice. Maybe another like interesting thing in that vein is that we ship a tool called Flategate to Rust, which does sort of what it sounds like. So you point it to a Flategate configuration file and it spits out a TOML for rough, you know, that's compatible. And it also tells you if there were things in the file that we don't support, which is useful too. Like, oh, hey, you're using these rules. Those actually aren't implemented yet. Yeah. That's also maintained as like part of the project. So, um, you know, recommend checking it out. Excellent. Well, Charlie, I think we're getting short on time, but not short on topic. There's a whole lot more to, to dive into. I think it's, it's a really cool project. I think it's neat. Are we going to do a big WASM section? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We do have time for that. We could do a WASM section. We even have some uh, great chat GCP questions in the audience, but I don't necessarily think that there's time for those, unfortunately. But there is one final question that I want to ask that's kind of inspired by the audience, but I think it's good for everyone. Jean Gabriel asks, is there a roadmap or timeline for rough development out there like what's next basically like i guess the short answer to that is no like there's not like a published uh, timeline unfortunately like most of this stuff exists in my head and in issues like everything happens on issues like we're just talking a lot on issues yeah i'll maybe talk a bit about like the things that i'm thinking about um so one is fixing like the structural pattern matching issue and so like getting full like python compatibility which it's sort of like one bug, but then unlocks us doing what I hope will be like a stable release, even if that's not that much changes and it's just kind of, you know, the marketing of it, but hopefully we'll fix that and then we can do like a stable release. The, uh, there are two other kind of big things on my mind. So one is this is like a really big project, but not, not rough. The thing I'm about to talk about, but, uh, I want to extend rough to do like full code auto formatting so that people could use it in lieu of black if they wanted to I think it's like a really natural fit for what Ruff is doing. And a lot of people ask about it. The way that that will, there's an issue where we talk about this, like on the repo, it's not like some big secret reveal, but uh, the way that I think about that, like like with all things is I want it to be like um, sort of incrementally adoptable. Like right now you can use Ruff with iSort or you can use just Ruff, or you can use Ruff to your import sorting, but like not as a linter. Like you can kind of pick and choose like what you want to use. And I view like the auto formatter is the same way. Like I fully expect that people will keep using rough and black, mm -hmm. but it's just like the kind of functionality that makes a lot of sense given what we're already doing and like the, the way that the project's evolving. So I need to like, I need to be careful because like, it's like that's a lot of work. And so I'm not like saying exactly when that will be done, but I do want to start working on it. 
And then the other thing, which is maybe like a little bit less exciting to other people is like, you know, I think at some point I'd like rough to get to a world where it kind of stands alone a little bit more. It isn't viewed quite as much as a compatibility, as this compatibility layer. Like right now, all the rules kind of map back to like a or other tools. And when you're using rough, you're kind of thinking in the mindset of those other tools, like what are the rules and how do I configure them? At some point in the future, I'd actually like, you know, rough to sort of have its own API, like own indexing of the rules and to view that as kind of a compatibility layer that will not go away. Like this won't put a burden on users, but I'd like to get to a point where like conceptually, a lot of this stuff is like first class in rough and it's not viewed as um, re-implementations of other extensions, which I think will enable us to do a lot of cool things, but I'm hopeful that plan on doing that in a way that has no disruption to users. So we'll continue to support the existing API and such. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Very exciting. Very exciting. It's, well, congratulations on project that people seem to love. It's got a lot of traction and uh, definitely doing some cool stuff. So before you get out of here, though, final two questions. If you're going to write some Python code, what editor are you using these days? Uh, I use PyCharm for everything. And that includes Rust. But I do all my Rust and my Python and PyCharm. Nice. Is there a, a cool plugin that basically adds Rust support to... Yeah, there's just an, there's an official IntelliJ Rust plugin. Got it. Nice. Works really well. I've used um, IntelliJ for uh, or like that platform for Dart and Flutter, but I haven't tried to plug Rust into it. But yeah, it, it does it does do a lot of things. Cool. And then notable PyPI package, something out there. Um, you've named a couple that do the Rust integration nicely, but anything you want to give a shout out to? Yeah, I really want to give a shout out. I've already mentioned it a few times, but I think if you're interested in doing Rust Python stuff, you should really look at Matrin. Matrin. All right. M-A-T-U-R-I-N. It's just, uh, it just like makes the publishing really easy and you still have to learn Rust, which is not easy, but I do. It's worthwhile, I think, but it's not easy, but it makes the publishing Rust code to PyPy or PyPI, sorry, uh, really easy. Awesome. Well, great recommendation. Thanks for being here. Uh, final call to action. People want to get started with Rough. What do you tell them? The main thing that I would like to say is like, if you're interested in contributing, even if you don't know that much Rust um, and are interested in learning, like I'd love to you know, see you on the repo. And I hope it's a place that people feel really welcome to like come and contribute, even if they aren't 100% here and if their code is right or anything like that. So definitely really excited to you know have more contributors and have more people coming into the project. Um, and of course, you should also try using it yourself. All right, excellent. Well, thanks for being here. It was a great, great conversation with you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a really, uh, really cool opportunity. Appreciate it. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Thank you to our sponsors. Be sure to check out what they're offering. It really helps support the show. Join Cox Automotive and use your technical skills to transform the way the world buys, sells, and owns cars. Find an exciting position that's right for you at talkpython.fm slash cox. Earn extra income from sharing your software development opinion at user interviews. Head over to talkpython.fm slash user interviews to participate today. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on talkpython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm slash YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. 
Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.